good thing is many people we didn't recognize as good, people from the community, uh, coming to the block party. And I think, well, I don't think I know that. Uh, there, I mean, it's very clear the reason we were doing it. And it's very clear by the presence of so many of you there is because we want to make Christ known. That's the name of our series as we're studying Philippians. It's making Christ known. And it's, it's significant because sometimes we think, well, that's, that's Sunday morning when you preach, right? Oh, no, no, no. It's just a small portion of it. Making Christ known for a church body is 24-7. And sometimes it involves events like the block party, uh, a movie on the lawn the night before, uh, other events that are taking place the Sunday morning, our worship, the Sunday school, the mosaics, all this taking place through this church. Coming up, the uh, uh, Harvest of the First Fruits in November, where we'll have meals uh, and people can come in. Uh, that's all part of what we do, what God has called us to do, and that is making Christ known. And that was Paul's intent when he wrote this letter to the Philippian church. He he was very concerned that they would continue in what they were already doing. Continue to make Christ known. He wanted the people around them to realize there is a God who loves them. He wanted them to realize, he wanted the people around that church to realize that these were genuine believers. And so much of what he wrote about had to do with the very personal lives of the believers. Because you know as well as I do, to put on a front and to say, yeah, I'm one of those Christians and then not live like it, doesn't want that. We don't want that. God doesn't want that. And so he's very concerned about the genuine lives of the believers. So he touches on that again today. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4. And I thought of a question to start out. Um, We're familiar with the term control freak, right? You've heard that before? Sometimes humorous, sometimes not. It's a term to describe someone who must have their own little world well-ordered, and sometimes when that sphere bumps into other people, there's friction. Quite honestly, we all have at least a sliver of that characteristic in us. And I found that, this is just a fact, okay, one of the ways to soften that somewhat is to step out into situations that are beyond our control. One of the ways I do that is by going camping. We've learned over the years, or we're still learning, we need to go fully prepared for anything so that our time outdoors is enjoyable no matter what the circumstances are around us because inevitably there will be some circumstances beyond our control. One of the pictures we brought back uh, this summer from our trip, um, one of the photos is this this calm lake and the tree line on the opposite side is lit up bright green from the setting sun behind us. And overarching that lake is a double rainbow. It's just a very peaceful, tranquil scene, but just moments before, <laughs> wind, torrential rain, we're huddled under the tarp, listening to the thunder and watching the lightning. 
but we have to go prepared for anything because circumstances are beyond our control. We found that it's necessary to prepare for the unexpected. Dressing for any kind of weather. When we started out the trip this year, the first morning, it was 37 degrees. This is summer camping, 37. No matter how much preparation we do, we realize we cannot control the environment. We are completely at the mercy of the weather. Whether it be hard wind, whether it be stifling heat, whether it be driving rain, all we can do is prepare the best we can for any circumstance. We realize in our own lives, we have a God who does control our circumstances and a God who is infinitely patient with us as we learn and relearn to completely trust in him no matter what. Our tendency to be control freaks works against us, leads us away from the path to peace. We read Philippians chapter 4 and the availability of the peace of God, and there's some different reactions to the premise that we, as all believers, any believer, can experience this peace on a consistent basis. Some will say, you know, I'm pretty well set. No chaos. A few little bumps here and there, nothing I can't handle. My coping mechanisms of avoidance and suppression are so firmly in place and finely tuned that very few circumstances can rattle me. Others hear about the path to peace and say, I want that. I know what's out there. I hear peace and there's just something inside of me that desires that more than anything, but it always seems just beyond my grasp. Others would say, been there, done that. I prayed for peace when I was going through sickness, broken relationship, loss of job. Relief only came when the chaos ended. It seems like God is selective by making peace only available to people, some people, in certain situations. Or we read the, uh, in verse 6, or verse 4, we read, rejoice always, and we say, you know, (laughs) there are times when the don't worry, be happy message just doesn't quite cut it. We think, when we encounter people who seem to act happy all the time, you know, their Facebook statuses give the impression that they're the happiest people on the planet. And those people in church, they seem to have it all together. I just don't fit in there. Hmm. Now, if somebody gives you a pen and, and written on it, rejoice in the Lord. And you say, stop it. Don't they know what I'm going through? Lost job, sick family member, my own illness, and so on and so on. Who is this God who is the source of real peace and real joy? How can we find this path? Philippians four has some clues to find the answer. If you haven't already turned there, turn to Philippians chapter four. We're going to look at verses one through nine. And remember, as we stated before, this is Paul's letter to the Philippian church is one of overwhelming encouragement. There's other letters we can read in the Bible that are not quite so. I mean, think of when he wrote to the Galatian church. He says, you foolish Galatians. Wow, Paul, did you really have to say that? But that doesn't come up in Philippians. It's encouraging. 
throughout the entire book. Chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Chapter 2, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. In chapter 3, forgetting what lies behind and straining to what lies ahead. And throughout, reading between the lines, as it were, we hear Paul's heart for reaching the lost. He sees the potential the Philippian believers have to be actively spreading the gospel. That's where it applies to us. That's where it applies to our church. There is that potential as well. Paul makes it clear that the spread of the gospel has its most potent effect through the genuine Christ-like lives of God's people. He understands the temptations to sin, to, to waver in our faith, to argue, to lack unity, to be cynical, to be pessimistic, to be untrusting, to fail to pray, to fill our minds with fantasy and harmful thoughts. So he encourages us in these nine verses to do this, to stand firm in verse 1, to be unified in verses 2 and 3, to rejoice in verses 4 and 5, to pray in verses 6 through 7, and to think righteously in verses 8 and 9. Wow. I could take each one of those topics and spend an entire sermon on each. And, and we didn't pick them today. Sometimes you're like me and you're sitting out there and thinking, I know why he's talking about that today. He knew I was going to be here. Oh, no, no, no. I'm just, here's what's here. I don't know who's here. I don't know what the needs are. But I can tell you there's some very deep, valuable truths in these few verses. I believe... Listening to and practicing Paul's encouragement, we can experience the peace of God provided by the God of peace. Here's how. Start looking at verse 1. In the midst of a chaotic world, Paul encourages the Philippian believers first to stand firm. Now, since this verse is actually connected to the previous thought, we need to back up a bit. Paul is writing in chapter 3 about the enemies of the cross. Their mind is on earthly things. But then in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to, even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my bro- brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. It's the concluding thought to the previous paragraph where Paul encourages the Philippian believers, await the Savior, anticipate the future realization of our citizenship in heaven, maintain an eternal perspective. Live through this life now with a view toward eternity. Stand firm thus in the Lord. He uses the same phrase, stand firm, in chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Now, take that, move that phrase out of there for a minute and look at all the other related terms in that verse. Look closely at that verse. Brothers. He uses the plural, which probably means brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, whom I love. He uses the word for agape, meaning the self-giving love. And long for, that's personal affection for them. 
My joy and crown. He's so proud of them. Kind of like a grandparent when they're with their grandchild. My joy and my crown. That's how he felt about them. And then he says, my beloved. All of those terms together, look at all of them, indicate a strong affection. What encourages Paul the most is not about the success in their building program. Not about all the programs they're doing and their fundraising efforts. Not that they're all healthy and have good jobs, but that they stand firm in the Lord. That's what encourages him the most. Their relationship with God is tight. It's growing. It's not stagnant. It's not wavering in the face of opposition. The opposition the Philippian believers faced was persecution. Kind of a hard jump for us. We don't quite understand or realize what that is, the persecution aspect. But we should and need to understand what the opposition is. For us in the American church today, one of the forms of opposition is complacency and materialism. And some of us sit there and say, huh, is that a problem? Oh, yes. And sometimes when you think about persecution, that kind of binds people together. But here we are in the American church today facing complacency and materialism. That is opposition, folks. That is something that we need to dig deeply into God's word and see, what are we supposed to do about that? And it's not pointing at the other people and saying, yeah, they ought to get going on that. It's saying, what do I need to do about it? What he wants, what Paul writes about, is that they stand firm in the Lord. And he's very direct here. Many of us are, are um, more accustomed to a, an indirect approach, kind of hint, hinting at this and hinting at that. God in his sovereignty saw fit to inspire Paul to write something very directly. Direct approach. God spells it out for them. Stand firm in the Lord. It's in this context of love and affection that verse 2 comes in. He urges two of the people there to get along with each other. Look at that. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So we've got two points there. First, in the midst of chaotic world, Paul encourages the Philippian believers to stand firm. And secondly, verses 2 and 3, to be unified. Now keep in mind the context here. Look at all the statement before that. Okay, that, Remember we looked at each, each word in there? See how heavily loaded that is with affirming, endearing terms. And then he calls two people out by name. It's correction done in love. It's love that motivates Paul to this, not trying to change somebody else's behavior. Big difference. He says, I entreat, I urge, implore. Now, others, other words that he uses in here are imperatives. Do this, do that. This isn't. This is saying, please, please, I encourage you, please you to agree in the Lord. <clears throat> I think the application for us, too often we, in what we would call corrective encouragement, we attempt to do it, but our motivation too often is our need to control or our fix-it mentality or pride because we're embarrassed when other people notice or even anger. But here, Paul is doing what he wrote about to the Ephesians. Remember he wrote that? Speak the truth in love has to be both and. 
And quite frankly, the love has to come first. It's not, how can I speak truth to that person and let them know I love them? No, no, no. I love that person so much that I'm willing to gently, firmly, directly speak truth into his or her life. Then our truth-telling will be in line with what God, God wants them to hear and not us. Now, just think. Remember the, the, the context here. Uh, this wasn't, they went to the copy machine and distributed copies of Paul's letter. This was read to the whole church in an open, open setting. So here you are, the readers, going through and telling how fond and how, how Paul just dearly loves the people. And then he calls out two names. Can you imagine if you were Yodia or Sintike sitting there? They're probably, they're probably like sitting on opposite ends of the room, right? And here they are going reading through that, and all of a sudden they hear their names. Bunk. Wow. Did Paul really do that? He just called us out on that. Wow. Again, realize, in Paul's way of handling this conflict, he recognizes and he writes in such a way that we know that conflict must be handled and not ignored, and it must be handled in a way that honors God. Now, Paul touched on the topic of unity briefly already in this same letter. Chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then again, chapter 2, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Unity in the body of Christ brings glory to God. And one of the effects that it has makes possible the effective spread of the gospel. Who's going to listen to people who fight? Right? And Paul doesn't take sides here or try to unnecessarily insert himself into the equation. It's as though the unspoken thought is, you're adults, figure it out. Unity is essential. And quite honestly, unity is not natural. Sometimes we have an affinity for another person if they, they love the bears like we do. That's different. That's not unity. Unity goes much deeper. But especially for us here in America, who are so individualistic, unity is not natural for us. It's what I think, what I say. And it's taking that self which is essentially what it is, and putting it to the side and say, oh, there are, I should consider people actually more important than I. That's back in chapter 2. And, oh, maybe the world doesn't revolve around me. Yeah. Unity is, is, is necessary. It's, it's a testimony to the outside world. Paul's concern is for the whole church as well. That's why he did this. See, a disagreement like this between just two people has an effect on the whole church. Think about that. He's saying, ladies, get it together, because your conflict has the potential to be divisive on a larger scale. Just one more note about the, the church unity there. It's, it's impossible without forgiveness, generous Forgiveness. Forgiving those who have slighted us, either intentionally 
or unintentionally. We think sometimes forgiveness is a one-time event. Oh, no. It's a process. For some, it has to happen every day. And then look in verse 3. You, and some translations will call him by name. We don't know if Syzygus was his name or my true companion. Either way, this individual, he says, help him out. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I love how he drops names in here. He knows these people well. He knows them well. He loves them deeply. This references the necessity for community when pursuing unity. This is how God designed it. For imperfect people to help other imperfect people. Now, it must, like I said, it must have been a disagreement that was public. And when they heard those names come up, different people in the congregation might have reacted differently. Somebody said, yeah, Paul, go get them. Let's have it out right here, right now. Then there's other people, different type, different approach to conflict, who just kind of shrink down and their stomach ties in a knot and say, oh, I'd rather not this messy stuff not be dealt with, just make it go away somehow. But quite frankly, conflict within a congregation must be dealt with. Sometimes the Holy Spirit quietly prompts the individuals involved. They respond, and it's resolved. Other times, God's leading will prompt another church member to come up to a brother and sister and say, Hey, can we talk? Other times, God's leading prompts the church leaders to get involved. But each situation is different, and each conflict must be handled with care in a way that honors God. This past week, you may have seen this, a portion of a church service in Oklahoma was aired on YouTube. It was a pastor walking among his congregation, calling out various individuals for personal, private issues where he thought they were failing. Here's one quote. You're one of the sorriest church members I have. You're not worth 15 cents. Wow. And he went on like that. And it became pretty evident that this is about him. And I tell you what, with over 600,000 views, I'm sure there are plenty plenty of people that said, See, (laughs) that's why I don't go to church. Sad. Because you know what? That's not a pastor speaking. That's an individual who's tired in ministry, who really no longer loves his flock, and quite frankly, frankly, he needs to let his fellow elders come around him for removal from the pulpit and restoration. Some who commented on the YouTube video cited Philippians 4.2 in support. But I tell you what, couldn't be further from the truth. Paul's language is far, far different in chapter 4, verse 2. It's a shepherd's language. It's to encourage Paul continues this encouraging language in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. We saw that he told them to stand firm, to be unified, and thirdly, to rejoice. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. 
Now, the word rejoice is something we find in the Bible. It's not a common word in our vernacular. Okay, you're not at the Bears game or Bulls game and say, Rejoice, rejoice! People look at you like, okay, not sure about that one. Okay, so, so what does that mean? You know, we're supposed to like a, wear a smiley face pin, and anytime anybody says something to us, we respond with praise the Lord. See, rejoicing is not contrived. It's not a purely emotional state of being. In fact, I believe one can be quite somber and still be rejoicing. Emotions are certainly a component, but not the only component. And the word, if it was standalone, if Paul just put the word rejoice in there, it wouldn't be much more than be happy, look at the glass half full rather than half empty. Paul adds two clarifying elements to the command. First, he says, always. So the rejoicing, being glad in the Lord, is a pattern. It's not just a one-time event. It's not situational. Depending on what's going on in my life now, I'll decide whether or not to rejoice. See, behavioral and motivational patterns take time to develop, as does rejoicing. And often it means a reversal of other, more damaging patterns. And then not only does he say rejoice always, he says rejoice always in the Lord. Real, true, genuine, lasting joy can only come from God himself. Everything else may be uplifting, have pure motives. It might have the desired effect is just a substitute for the real thing. It's the difference between trying to stay positive, think happy thoughts, and truly seeking to know God. See, rejoicing comes from seeking God first, not seeking joy or happiness. And Paul repeats it for emphasis. Anytime you see a word like this repeated in the Bible, especially in one verse and one phrase, it's important. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Again, not a commonly used term, but it means considerate, gentle spirit, gentleness. Let it be evident to all. Compare uh, back in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, where, where Jesus is speaking, and he says, I am gentle, same word, and lowly in heart. Now, this is the all-powerful of the God, all-powerful God of the universe speaking there. It doesn't mean weak or wimpy. It's being considerate, putting others first, seeking what's best for everyone, not just myself. And he says, "Let this characteristic be evident. Others should know it." Notice. And then he adds the, the following encouragement: "The Lord is at hand," meaning He's near. It's a term that can mean both geographic proximity or it can mean in the context of time. Most would read this from this context. It means Christ's second coming could come at any moment. That's cause for encouragement. It's something to look forward to, not with dread, but as an encouragement with anticipation. So in the midst of a chaotic world, Paul encourages the Philippian believers Stand firm, in verse 1. To be unified, verses 2 and 3. To rejoice, 
verses 4 and 5, and then in verses 6 and 7, to pray. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Some of us think that's easy for Paul to say, well, remember where he was. He was locked up. And we know the end of the story. He didn't. He didn't know when his life would be taken. He didn't know how it would be taken. And so he's writing these words to people like us. We need to hear them. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I looked a few places where that word anxious comes up in Scripture. And Paul has just a very short statement here, don't be anxious about anything. Jesus spells it out quite a bit more in his Sermon on the Mount. Do you recall back in Matthew chapter 6? He doesn't just make a statement, don't be anxious about anything. He spells it out for us. Listen to this. Chapter 6, if you want to turn there, you can. Chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, this is Jesus speaking to all the people and the disciples, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, here it is, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. God is the one who provides for us. He is the one who cares for us. He cares so deeply about each of us. First Peter 5, 7, casting all of your cares upon him because he cares for you. That's the God that we worship. That's the God that inspired Paul to say, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I found another place where this uh, word pops up, and Carrie pointed this out to me last week. In the same book, in Philippians, the word anxious. It comes up in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul is telling the Philippian believers, I'm sending Timothy to you, who is genuinely concerned for you. Same word. Isn't that interesting? You say, wait, wait, wait. Is there a good anxiousness? <laughs> Depends on the context. Timothy was concerned for others, for one thing. 
And being concerned is not the same as being anxious. Being anxious is thinking God somehow needs you to control the situation because he can't. Big difference. I recently read this definition of worry. Worry or anxiousness takes a potential happening from the future and paralyzes you in the present as if it were a reality. I like that. Let me read that again. Worry. It takes a potential happening from the future and paralyzes you in the present as if it were a reality. Quite frankly, it comes down to a personal lack of trust in God. Think of the people of Israel. Think of how God brought them out of Egypt and just in a short time, they thought, you know, we're not quite sh- we're sh- sure that he can do this. So they made an idol, they made a calf, a golden calf, and they began to worship that. Just in case God wasn't enough. And they continued to do that throughout their history. All the way from the judges, into the kings, into the time of captivity. They kept saying, you know, we worship God, but we're not quite sure he's enough, so we're going to add these things into it. That's a lack of trust. That's exactly what we do. I'll worship God. But just in case he doesn't come through, I'll have this backup. And God looks at us and says, no, no, no. You can trust me. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. When we think about anxiousness, we have some creative responses. I know of a few. Probably we've all used these. One is denial. Oh, I'm not worried. <laughs> it's coming from someone who thinks and talks about an issue all the time. Or, it's normal. What else am I going to do in my spare time? It's become such a pattern for us. That's just what we do. Or, we know it, but we just can't stop worrying. And we think, you know, God is mad at me right now because I worry too much. That's guilt. That's no good either. Or we think, I know it's counterproductive. I know it doesn't actually change anything. It causes me ulcers, but I don't know how to stop. There is an answer. It's in that same verse. Prayer. When I'm talking about prayer, I'm talking about real, raw, extended conversations with God. Prayer and supplication, Paul uses these two words together in other writings. Prayer is a more general term related to worship. Supplication, again, we don't use that word much, but it's more like a petition. Uh, It's more specific. You're asking, petitioning someone for something specific. And he says, do it with thanksgiving. Make it a regular practice. So, So as we pray, as this continues, and prayer and supplication and petitioning, thanksgiving is included there as well. Too often we just do that once a year in November, or whenever God provides something abundantly for us, then we think, oh yeah, I better thank God for that. No, this is something that takes place on a regular basis. This is something I think, I firmly believe, that we need to do on a daily basis. We are humans, we forget too easily. And you think, what, 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 what can I thank God for? Thank God for giving you life and breath. Thank God for giving you access to the, all, the throne of the almighty God of the universe because of the sacrifice of Jesus, his son. Thank God for the indwelling Holy Spirit. Speaks words that we cannot articulate. 
Thank God for the eternal security that we have. We're going to be in his presence forever. Of course there's something to thank him for. Thank him for what he's given us materially. He has blessed us abundantly. Thank him for all of those things. Start listing those things. And, and do it not just now and then, not just at the dinner table, but as a consistent practice. That's Thanksgiving. And then he says, present your requests to God. I would say, write them down. Be intentional. Be purposeful. You know what? Write them in pencil. (laughs) Write them being open to God, examining and revealing your motives. I don't know if you've ever done that before, written down these requests and thinking, God, this is the list now? Okay, so uh, I can just cross them off. Sometimes as you pray through them and God prompts your heart, he says, that one there, that's really about you, isn't it? Get out the eraser. Yeah, you're right. Okay. But we do. We need to allow God to examine us. James chapter 4, verses uh, verses 2 and 3. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We tell the Lord, you know I need this job, when we should say, you know what I need. And we're to present our request to him. And God is not there saying, here he goes again. I'm coming back to me for more. No, no, no. God loves it when we come to him. He wants us to come to him. He loves to be invited and to enter our lives, to heal, to forgive, even fix some of the stuff that we've broken, or just be there. His very real presence sometimes is all that's needed. And then after we pray that, we get everything we ask for, right? Not. Paul clearly ties this statement with the previous, verse 7. Here's the result of not being anxious, of being in prayer, and the peace of of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the peace of God that we cannot understand. That's kind of hard sometimes for us analytical types. We want to take it apart, analyze it, do the word uh, search, do all this kind of stuff. No, no, no. This peace that God provides, you can't comprehend. It's that deep. It's that big. This echoes Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. He said, uh, where, where Isaiah writes, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. The resulting reality of a mind that is focused on God is peace. And see, God is the source of this peace, not just pleasant circumstances, and the absence of chaos. John chapter 14, verse 27. This is Jesus' last moments with his disciples on earth. He's telling them everything he possibly can before he's put on the cross to die. And this is what he says to them. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. This biblical concept of peace, which we know in, you've heard the Hebrew, shalom, it conveys a much richer, deeper expression than what we normally think of in contemporary English. It has more to do with the blessings that come from a right relationship with God. It's not a self-centered, psychological state of mind 
brought on by emptying my mind of everything and only letting happy thoughts in. That pattern might make for a calmer person, at least on the outside. No, this piece is God's doing. So it's nothing that I did. It's Him. You see John chapter 14, 27? My peace I give to you. The right relationship with God comes from naming anxiety for what it is, sin, and totally surrendering to an all-loving and caring God. He is the one who enables the peace, not us. And this peace will guard our hearts and minds. You see that word in there, guard? It's a military term, garrison, protect. That peace will protect our hearts and minds. We need that. See, the problem with us as humans is think, I'm cool, I'm okay. And this, this, sometimes we you know, empty our minds of this or think of that. No, 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 no. We need God there protecting. That peace protects us. In the midst of a chaotic world, Paul encourages the Philippian believers, stand firm, be unified, rejoice, pray. And then verses 8 and 9, think righteously. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The action on our part is fix our mind on those things. Those things, he's writing about, something that's true, not fantasy or fear, something, something that's honorable and noble, that has to do with our character, who we are when no one's looking. Something that's just, not vengeful. Something that's pure, having pure thoughts, thoughts that honor God. Something that's lovely and gracious, not having an unforgiving spirit. And commendable and admirable. Anything of excellence or virtuous. This is a moral excellence that comes from God. Anything worthy of praise. Think about these things. It will affect our behavior. I think at the root of our words... Our actions, our motives, are their positive characteristics that come from surrendering our minds to the God of peace. You look back in verse 7 and you see the word minds in verse 7, and you link that to think in verse 8. It has to do with what's going on in our minds. Paul encourages us to be discerning. He's not saying become a hermit and turn our backs on the world. I'll tell you what, we live in an information age. Those of you who did not grow up in this age, you can nod your head, I recognize that. Um, but choosing to filter out all of the information available to me by God's standards, just because it's available to me shouldn't, doesn't mean I should consume it. Paul provides a short list when considered as a whole describes the inward, unseen character of a person surrendered to God. I tell you what, if we fail to filter, if we constantly fill our minds with unfiltered media, especially print, film, music, entertainment, web-based or not, material which does not fit the criteria of Philippians 4.8, then we're not being discerning. And a very practical, helpful thing is, Print out Philippians 4.8 and tape that onto your laptop or computer monitor or television. This consistent, intentional, thoughtful practice of turning our minds toward good things prevents the idols of the heart expanding and controlling our unconscious thoughts, which then inevitably affects our motives and words and actions. In verse 9, 
Paul just doesn't leave it at just listen and agree with these things. Sometimes we do that. We, we, we listen to all this stuff, say, ah, oh, that's good. Oh, yeah, I agree. Oh, yeah. Do something about it. That's what Paul's saying in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is the path to peace. Back in verse 7, it says the peace of God will guard your hearts. In verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. That's a for sure thing. Our life, our patterns of words, our motives, our actions, are results from how we filter and how we concentrate our thought life. Don't waste your life slopping around in the filth of an impure, self-centered state of mind. Some of us perhaps don't even understand what the God of peace is. Well, there's another phrase in Scripture found in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says, having peace with God. That comes before experiencing the peace of God. And you know what it means by having peace with God? That means there must have been something wrong there to begin with. And there was, for each one of us, there was something that was called sin. And God recognized that and realized that on the part of the human race. And in order to care for that, he sent the sinless one, Jesus, to come and take our punishment. Because because of that sin, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. We deserve to die, eternal death. God says, I don't want that. So he sent his only son, Jesus. Died in our place. Took all of that punishment, all of the sin that you can think of, that you've done. He took that. And put it out on the cross. And died for you and for me. And you know what that brought us to? Peace with God. Because once we experience that peace with God, then we can begin to understand and experience peace of God. I think every one of us has that inward desire for peace. How do some define peace? They say it's the absence of chaos from my life. God would say, you know what? It's my loving presence no matter what the circumstance How do you pursue that peace? Some would say, avoid or manage that chaos as much as possible. And God would say, pursue it by choosing to rejoice, not being anxious, being in prayer, and developing those God-honoring thought patterns that keep us firmly on the path to peace. Our God and Father in heaven, as you have taught us from your word this morning, once again, we realize how much we have to learn. Lord, we we acknowledge that there are times, and I know that even within this congregation today, there are times, there are moments, there are periods where peace seems like the furthest thing from us. But we know from your word we can be assured that the path to peace is through what you have taught us from your word. Continue to teach us. We acknowledge that we need to learn and relearn those principles. We acknowledge that we need you. We come to you as a needy congregation saying, please help us. Individually in our own personal lives and corporately as a congregation of believers. It's our desire to honor you. It's our desire to be a shining light in this community. 
And we won't be fake about it, Lord. We want to be real. So bring about those changes deep in our personal lives so we can truly, truly worship you and bring honor to your name. We commit this to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.